Welcome back, pool fans. From coast to coast, you are listening to American Billiard Radio. My name is Mr. Bond. I'll be your host once again this week. It is June the 23rd, 2016. And you know what? Speaking of June the 23rd, a hundred years ago today, nope, a hundred years ago tomorrow, actually, marks the anniversary of the death of a gentleman by the name of Lanson Perkins. Lanson Perkins. He was originally from Beloit, Wisconsin, and he took off and went out to the San Francisco area in the 1860s and became somewhat of a, I guess you might call it a champion speed player out there. Got some action in, uh, participated in some of the big tournaments out west, and then he took himself with uh, a friend to Tombstone, Arizona, of all places, and uh, he took up a job there working in the billiard room uh, at the hotel, and uh, just so happened to be the same hotel that Wyatt Earp came to and went to work as the pharaoh dealer. So the two became, you know, acquaintances, so to speak. Um, and if you know the story of Tombstone, Arizona, and Wyatt Earp and all that stuff, uh, you know that Wyatt eventually got insulted enough that he kind of went rogue and started killing guys that he thought was responsible. And, uh, you know, technically that was against the law, even though he was probably in the right for doing it. I don't know. That may be debatable. But uh, the local sheriff went after Wyatt Earp, and he deputized Mr. Lanson Perkins in the hunt for Wyatt Earp. So Lanson actually... kind of traded being a a billiard guy for a law enforcement guy there for a little bit. Uh, The whole white art thing didn't didn't pan out well. They didn't catch him. Uh, He kind of made a way. And uh, long story short, Mr. Perkins ends up moving back east to Chicago where he takes up residence at uh, one of the most famous billiard rooms in the country, uh, owned by W.P. Mussey. Uh, Mr. Perkins went there and was the house pro. He became a billiard instructor. Um, he brought forth into the championship uh, ranks a, a gentleman by the name of Calvin Demarest, who went on to become a, a champion bulk line player. And uh, he was working on another professional player, Welker Cochran, if you know who Welker is. And then, of course, um, you know, old age got the best of him. Mr. Perkins died. And like I said, 100 years ago tomorrow, June 24th, 1916, Lanson died in Chicago. Mr. Mussey, his owner, uh, owner, the owner of the room that he worked at, also a good friend of his, uh, had Mr. Perkins' body shipped back to Beloit, where it was uh, laid to rest in the cemetery, the local cemetery there, which we have gone to and visited, by the way, and we located his gravesite. His whole family is buried there. Strangely enough, his family members seem to have a propensity for dying in June. <laughs> he, he had a brother and his mother both died in the month of June. His father died in May. 
So something about the early, late spring, early summer there. They just seemed to croak during that time. Anyway, um, Mr. Perkins was an, a, a very intelligent guy. Um, he wrote on the subject of billiards infrequently, but there are writings of his out there to be heard. So uh, if you ever get a chance to read some of his stuff, very brilliant man. So props to you, Mr. Perkins. Um, what else is going on? You know, we got announcement uh, that uh, the brand new ten ball event in Toronto that has been uh, that was being organized by uh, Jim Weich and Jerry Forsyth has been canceled. Um, that the whole thing has just been a big mess, to be honest with you. Uh, first, it was going to be an eight ball world championship. Then there was a debate with the WPA over whether or not they should be the ones to have the event. Because somebody else was willing to pay more. Uh, so they changed it, uh, canceled the 8-ball championship and changed it to a 10-ball championship. And they ha- had thought that they had the funding lined up for the prize fund, which was going to be fantastic. And now uh, it seems that the the backers have backed out. <laughs> they have unbacked the event, which is very unfortunate. Uh, you know, Jim and Jerry both are... Uh, very experienced, knowledgeable, honest people, and it would have been a great thing. So let's just hope that Jim, um, you know, figures out some other way to, to go about it. So uh, just keep your fingers crossed, you know. It's disappointing, but, you know, it, things happen sometimes uh, that are out of your own control. So I guess we just have to deal with it. <clears throat> Excuse me. What else is going on? Oh, we had a good time yesterday and then day before over at the Pyramid Club in Chicago. Uh, Darren Appleton and Johnny Archer are on a sort of a miniature exhibition and instructional tour that's about to wrap up in uh, Michigan. And I just want to throw a shout out to uh, to Mark Cantrell, one of our co-hosts here on the show, who is out on the road with him right now, which is <laughs> why he's not on the show today. Uh, and a shout out to uh, a shout out to Mark and Johnny and, and Darren because uh, they were really making it worth the people's time. Uh, to come out and, and visit with them and learn from them. It seemed like it was a really great experience. And not all the pros will do that. And uh, so, you know, like I said, a pat on the back for those guys for getting out and, and uh, you know, bringing themselves to the people, so to speak. Good stuff, guys. Um, what else is going on? Well, you know, we got uh, the Atlantic Challenge Cup is right around the corner. If you guys are not stoked about that, you, you should be. If you need to watch the free, or if you want, what you should be doing is watching the free stream. You should go to your favorite bar, restaurant, or club, or your friend's house, or somewhere, and get that sucker up on the big screen. They will free stream it. Go to, and CSI and uh, AZ Billiards are helping out with the with the technicalities. So you're going to want to visit the CSI website to see the view uh, the free stream. Um, not necessarily the Atlantic Challenge Cup website. So just make a note of that. The Play CSI Pool website is where you can view that. And do view it. And then, you know, Facebook the heck out of all the team members and let them know that you support them, okay? That's good stuff. And then, of course, you know, there's the Cole Dixon uh, Memorial is right around the corner also. And uh, an early warning, again, for uh, we're just about a month away from... The CSI-sponsored 8-Ball Open, U.S. Open 8-Ball and U.S. Open 10-Ball and their BCA Nationals, all coming up about a month away. The early sign-up deadline is like 
couple days away. So if you're playing in these events, get on it. Or if you're planning to go, get on it. Going to be good stuff, guys. Oh, and that and the U.S. Open nine ball uh, is not that far away. So you should probably be making plans for that, too. Anyway, um, that's about all the major headlines for the week. And um, we are also going to have a short show again this week, too, because um, our co-hosts are out and about running around the, the, the country with uh, these pool champions. So what we're, we're going to do is we're going to continue uh, with the book reading that we've started last week. We are covering, this time, we're covering Willie Hoppy's book, 30 Years of Billiards, which was published in 1925. So if you want to catch up, go back and listen to last week's episode for the first couple of chapters. We will continue this week with three and four. And we will be back with that right after this. Okay, welcome back, everybody. All right, this is the portion of the program where we're going to be reading, uh, we're doing an audio book. And this time we did Andrew Ponzi last time, and this time we're doing a book by Willie Hoppy called 30 Years of Billiards. It was published originally in 1925. Uh, we will continue this week with Chapter 3. Chapter 3, we play for Maurice Daly in Brooklyn, and I receive some sound advice. The news that Frank and I were going to New York to play in a series of exhibition matches in one of the greatest billiard rooms caused quite a ruckus around Cornwall Landing. We spread the news amongst our schoolmates up in the village, and they too became quite excited about it. For more than a week prior to that eventful Monday, my brother and I practiced diligently on the old billiard table in the barber shop. We rehearsed bank shots, combinations, and freak formations while our friends, the barbers and hack drivers, looked on and offered advice. My mother was not yet reconciled to the idea of our venturing out into the world at such a tender, tender age. But when the great day came, she dressed us in our best blouses, tied our bow ties, and sent us away bravely with as much cheerfulness as she could muster. My father went with us, of course, and again, as the West Shore train pulled out, the station platform was lined with hack drivers waving their whips and shouting friendly messages. We carried our own private cues, and each of us, in our trouser pocket, had a trusty piece of chalk. We might have depended on Mr. Daly to provide these small essentials, but on such a great occasion we were not in any mood to take chances. West Point, Haverstraw, Weehawken, a marvelous ride on a ferry boat across the river, electric cars, a great deal of noise and confusion, with my father pointing out the car window. This is Broadway. Yonder is Madison Square Garden, Daly's Theater, and the old Astor House. We were completely bewildered by the time we reached the billiard room on Washington Street, Brooklyn. Yet new wonders were in store for us. What an extraordinary establishment it was, Gas lights, a great mahogany bar across one wall, a carpet on the floor, and as many as 18 billiard tables in one big room. Of all these marvels, 
The gaslights were the most admired, for we were accustomed to the uncertain rays of the two kerosene lamps above our table at Cornwall. Daly's was the sporting center of Brooklyn, and in the audience gathered to watch us were a number of old-time characters of the town. Tom Gallagher was there, I think, and Dr. Henry D. Jennings, the Brooklyn amateur billiard player, who has since become my friend and advisor. Mr. Daly made us quickly feel at home, and when the spectators were all in their seats, he introduced us with a gay little speech. Frank and Willie Hoppy, he announced with a wave of his hand. The boy wonders of Cornwall. If they're half as good as their father says they are, you folks will get your money's worth. With that, we took our places at the table and lagged for the break. When once we had settled down to the serious business at hand, we forgot the ring of distinguished spectators, the gas lights, the mahogany bar, and all the lux luxurious trappings of the place. Our world narrowed to a little expanse of green cloth. For all that went on outside that small rectangle, we might have been playing on our old table at Cornwall, so intent we were upon our game. Frank got the first ripple of applause when, in the midst of a run, he tried a bank shot in a side pocket and made it cleanly. But the big hand of the evening came toward the end of the game when I was hopelessly behind and struggling to recover lost ground. I was confronted with a difficult cut shot in a corner pocket. There was no way to reach it from the floor, so I scrambled up onto the table and lay at full length. And now there was a double, a double problem ahead. To hit the object ball at a fine angle and then get out of the way of the cue ball on its rapid journey back from the lower rail. I took aim and fired away. Then, without waiting to see the result, I rolled over and flopped on all fours down on the floor. A roar of laughter greeted me as I arose, not so much for the shot itself as the tumbling feet <laughs> that accompanied it. After that, Frank and I often practiced that acrobatic feat of bouncing off the table on all fours to escape the cue ball. In an exhibition, it never failed to get a laugh. A reporter for the Brooklyn Eagle was present at Daly's that night, and the following piece appeared in the paper the next morning. Youngsters play good billiards. Frank and Willie Hoppy begin their exhibition at Daly's. Many local billiard enthusiasts availed themselves of the opportunity to watch the two young phenomena, Frank and Willie Hoppy, play their favorite game at Daly's Academy last night. The, the diminutive size of the two boys caused some misgivings, but the way they rattled off combination shots, made the double kiss, and other difficult shots, soon put the spectators on the keen edge of excitement. The game was 100 points up and was completed in 13 frames. Willie, the younger of the two, was a little off in his play, in his play but braced up toward the close, bring, being defeated by only 23 points. The actions of the two, when they missed, reminded the old-timers of well-known veterans. The score, Frank Hoppy, 100, Willie Hoppy, 77. The two lads will play again tonight. Maurice Daly had taken a keen interest in the game, 
and when it was over, he patted me on the head and said, Willie, that stroke of yours is better adapted to caroms than the pocket game. You have the making of a fine billiard player if you'll study the game and practice. He told my father that he had watched me closely through the match and had seen me several times stop and ponder, figuring the best shot for position instead of shooting impulsively like my brother Frank, who was the better shot maker of the two. I'd make a carom billiard player of him, Mr. Daly told my father, just before we started on the return journey to Cornwall, and my father nodded. So it was Maurice Daly who first recognized my billiard talent and started me on the right track. I can never thank him enough. From that night on, my career took a new course. That concludes Chapter 3. Chapter 4. Settling, settling Down to the Carom Game My father brought four ivory billiard balls back to Cornwall when we returned from our first exhibition matches at Daly's. Our old table in the barbershop was the combination variety, which could be changed into a carom table by inserting blocks into the pockets. Following Mr. Daly's advice, I dropped, I dropped the pocket game and tried my hand at caroms. There is all the difference in the world between the two games. In stroke, strategy, and general execution, they are totally unlike. But the chief difference lies in the point of concentration. In the pocket game, the player concentrates upon the object ball, and he is concerned chiefly with the course it takes after the cue ball strikes it. In caroms, it is the cue ball and its course with which the player is chiefly concerned. The pocket stroke is delivered sharply, crisply, to convey the player's intention without any quibbling to the object ball. The billiard stroke may be anything from a whiplash to a caress. At the age of eight years and two months, I was too young and carefree to be concerned with any of these nice distinctions, however, and when my father placed the three ivory balls upon the table and told me to make my cue ball connect with the other two, I tackled it with confidence and enthusiasm. As Mr. Daly had predicted, my wrist stroke was much better adapted to billiards than to the free swinging game of pocket billiards. Within a few weeks, I was making double-figure runs with regularity. My father's ambition to make a great billiard player of me met with mild opposition from my mother. But as I continued to improve, and as our exhibitions were bringing in an occasional 5 or $10 to swell the family coffers, she gradually yielded. No maestro ever drilled a young music pupil more severely than my father drilled me. Hour after hour, until my right arm was so weary it could scarcely hold the cue, <coughs> he, kept me to, he kept me at my task. Practice, practice, practice. The rail nurse, the anchor, and the masse, until I fell asleep at night, still weaving those ivory balls down the rails in and out, drive and block and kiss. Now, as I look back at those long afternoons of practice in the Cornwall barbershop, 
I realized that all that time I was acquiring a billiard instinct, a subconscious control of the balls that was to serve me faithfully in later years. Frank wasn't very keen for billiards. He would much rather play the pocket game. So my father decided to let each of us develop his own specialty. One of the first carom exhibitions that I gave was at the Union League Club in New York City. Maurice Daly made the arrangements, and when I arrived in the city that night, I found that he had bought a little tuxedo jacket for me to wear. These Union League, League folks are Tony, he told me, and you've got to dress up a bit for them. A clean white shirt, black bow tie, and a shoe shine completed the process of dressing up. And when Mr. Daly took me in a handsome cab to Fifth Avenue, Cornwall wouldn't have recognized her barber's son. This was vastly different from the billiard room in Brooklyn or any other billiard room I had played in. There were oil paintings on the wall and thick rugs on the floor. The furnishings were rich and luxurious, and every member had on his dinner clothes. But if they were Tony, they were cordial as well. Mr. Daly held me on his lap while my opponent was shooting, and every time I missed, he would whisper a word of friendly advice in my ear. After the exhibition, a dozen of the club, club members took me upstairs in the kitchen and made me an omelet. And before I left, they made up a purse of $50 for me. That was more money than I had ever seen before, and I carried it back to Cornwall Landing as proudly as if I had, as proudly as if it had been a fortune. In the spring of 1896, my father arranged arranged an exhibition at the Palatine Hotel, Newburgh. We played billiards on a four and a half by nine table, without any restrictions save the crotch nurse. I made a run of 310 at straight rail and a run of 36 at cushion caroms, averaging three at the latter game. It was that exhibition that made my father finally decide to give up the hotel and barbershop and devote his time wholly to exploiting, exploiting our talents on the road. I had not yet seen any of the great masters play billiards, so the foundation of my game was due largely to my father's advice and my own instinct. He had a methodical German mind, and he had played enough billiards to understand the principles of the rail nurse, which was the greatest scoring system in the 90s, and the, th the general theory of position play. These he drilled into my head by long hours of patient tutoring. He would place the balls for a one-cushion gather shot and tell me how it would be made. No matter, no matter whether I made it the first time or not, he would replace the balls and have me try again until I could not only gather the balls accurately but land perfectly on the se second object ball. Frank often rebelled at these tedious lessons. During the, <coughs> excuse me, during the summer months, he would slip away and go swimming down the river, or play baseball up in the village, while I kept at my stint around the billiard table, under the watchful eye of my father. When fall came, we were ready to fare forth again, this time in earnest. Again, my mother made a feeble protest, 
and again she yielded. We made arrangements with the school authorities to take our books with us and keep in close touch with our studies. My father sold his his barber shop and the lunchroom. We stored what little furniture we had in Grandma Hoffman's, or excuse me, Grandfather Hoffman's barn. And early in October, we quit Cornwall Landing for the wide world, trading the substantial income of the small hotel for the uncertain earning power of a couple of billiard cues wielded by two boys, the eldest of whom was only 11 and the youngest barely 9. That concludes chapter 4 and our reading for this week. So uh, we will continue next week with chapter 5 of 30 Years of Billiards by Willie Hoppy right here on American Billiard Radio.